Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus has made news, closed schools, and sometimes confused the public. How serious of a problem is MRSA in the community? How can we provide reliable and accurate information about MRSA to our patients? The National MRSA Education Initiative is a new resource that can arm physicians with answers. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Jeffrey Hageman, an epidemiologist and MRSA expert in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. Welcome, Mr. Hageman. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about MRSA in general. How common is Staph aureus, and particularly MRSA? Staph aureus is very common. It's it's on us. Approximately one out of every three people carry Staph aureus, most commonly in your nose. MRSA is, is more rare. We only see about one out of 100 people carrying MRSA on their skin. Now, MRSA, those people carrying MRSA are typically people who have contact with healthcare. When we look at infections caused by Staph and MRSA, people typically visit their doctors approximately 12 million times each year for these Staph infections. And over the past several years, the majority of them are now MRSA. Now, what are the signs and symptoms of MRSA skin infection? Can you tell that it's MRSA just by looking at it? No, that's a good point. So whether or not it's regular staph or the drug-resistant form MRSA, they each have the same signs and symptoms. And so these signs and symptoms are either a bump or an infected area on the skin that's red, swollen, painful, warm to the touch. Typically, staph does have pus associated with it, so you'll see a white or yellow center. And they may have other signs and symptoms, systemic signs, fevers, chills, depending on how severe the infection is. And it's not until you actually take a culture and have it tested in a laboratory can you make the differentiation between staph and MRSA. Now, how common is a serious type of MRSA infection, such as invasive disease or death from MRSA? So we know that approximately 94,000 severe MRSA infections occur in the U.S. Now, most of those, the majority of them, around 80 to 90 percent, are infections occurring in healthcare, in hospitals, in people who are sick, who have underlying illnesses. Few of those are the ones that occur in otherwise healthy people out in the general community. So clearly, healthcare-associated or healthcare-acquired MRSA is much more common than community-acquired, but are you finding that the rates of community-acquired MRSA are rising, or are they pretty much stable? So when we talk about the community, majority of those are the skin infections, and we know that skin infections caused by staph, which includes MRSA, have been increasing since the emergence of MRSA in the early 2000s. So back in the late 1990s, we only saw approximately 8 to 9 million outpatient doctor office visits, emergency department visits for the staph skin infections. And in the midst of the big emergence of MRSA, it's almost doubled. So we have 12 to 14 million visits now. So definitely MRSA is adding to the overall total of staph skin infections. Now, has CDC found that with the rise of the rates of MRSA infection that the public is also more aware? That's entirely true. There's been, I think it's a point of a lot of confusion too, especially last fall there was a lot in the news highlighting really these severe infections, which are more of the hospital infections. But we do see these sporadic reports 
very tragic reports of children dying, and it's starting to touch more people. So before, we really saw it emerge in the community, really limited to the elderly, limited to people having surgery. But now, because skin infections are so common, and anybody is at risk of getting one of these skin infections, that more and more people are exposed to the whole concept of MRSA. The confusing part is determining what applies to the community infections and, and what are the characteristics of these, these hospital infections. And so there's a great concern, there's a great fear among the general public that, oh, I have a skin infection. What they don't realize is that this is treatable. They often hear it referred to as a superbug, so they have it in their mind that you can't treat these infections and, and they're at high risk of dying, which isn't the case with these skin infections. Are there any risk factors such as age or gender or race that put somebody at higher risk of MRSA infection? So for MRSA, these skin infections, anybody can get an infection. People that do have skin issues like eczema, psoriasis, can be at higher risk for these skin infections. We also know these skin infections are transmitted among groups of people because they're on our skin in people who are in close quarters, so children who are in daycare settings, children who are in school, military recruits, in prisons, in athletic settings, those places where we tend to share a lot of skin surfaces with each other, that's where we see a lot of staph and MRSA transmission occur. Another common feature of, of these settings, while they all have different groups of people, many of the settings people get the breaks in their skin Staff likes to invade at these breaks in the skins, whether they're cuts or whether they're a turf abrasion in the athletes, whether they're, you know, scratched mosquito bites in a, in a child. Those act as entry points for the infection that's typically where we see them arise. Now let's talk a little bit about the National MRSA Education Initiative. And what was the driving force behind this program? The driving force was the need to get out accurate information so people could have an informed response. So if there was a case of MRSA in a school, they knew the appropriate steps to contain that, but also so that it didn't create panic. So what we're trying to do in the first phase is really have people understand what MRSA is and, and what it isn't. We know from research that we've done and others have done, people really do not have an understanding of what an MRSA skin infection is. In recent surveys that we've done, as little as one out of every four people had an understanding of what an MRSA or a staph skin infection meant. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Jeffrey Hageman, an epidemiologist and MRSA expert at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We're discussing the National MRSA Education Initiative. Now, who is the target audience of this initiative? Two targets. We have one, the general public, and then the other target are physicians, doctors, clinicians, nurses, athletic trainers. It's important to reach both of those audiences, one, so that people seek care when it's appropriately, but also that physicians and clinicians understand these patients when they come in, that they, they have MRSA in the front of their mind as a potential cause of these skin infections. What we found in patients is that they tend to delay in seeking care. They confuse them for bug bites or spider bites, and then that delay in seeking care potentially puts them at higher risk for more severe complications. So we really want people to recognize these infections. So one, that they don't get a severe infection themselves, but also that 
they're less likely, if they get treatment, to spread it to others in their family, in their schools, in their workplaces, and vice versa on the, on the physician-clinician side. We want to make sure that they think about MRSA for these skin and soft tissue infections and know the appropriate treatment. I think an important point to make is, you know, it's a piece of good news is that most of these skin infections, particularly these staph skin infections, the first-line treatment is incision and drainage. So the fact that it is drug resistant doesn't really play a role in the majority of these infections. So you mentioned incision and drainage. I believe that's part of the treatment algorithm that's listed on this education initiative website. What about culturing any material that's drained from the wound? Three organizations, CDC, the American Medical Association, and the Infectious Disease Society of America developed the treatment algorithm for skin and soft tissue infections, particularly focused on MRSA. And an important part of that is draining. And so if you're going to drain it, it's good to get a culture so that it can guide either your therapy down the line in case somebody has a recurrence or if it becomes severe. I think previous to MRSA emerging in the community, there really was a lack of culturing going on, predominantly because there was a lack of draining going on. People were relying too much just on antibiotic therapy. Now, while you're waiting for the culture to come back, is there any value in starting some type of empiric therapy? It's up to each doctor, each clinician, based on their judgment. There's certain situations where if it's in a area where it's not able to be drained completely, that might be a time where you prescribe antibiotics. Also, people at extremes of age, so the very young or the very old, people with underlying health conditions, the severity of the infection, are they severe local signs? Do they have some of those systemic signs? So it's really left up to the individual clinician and doctor to make that determination of whether or not to add antibiotics in addition to the incision and drainage. And there are certain situations where it's not possible to drain at that point. So again, leaving that up to clinical judgment. Now, what about decolonization? Is there a place for decolonization in this treatment algorithm? And if so, what would that entail? So right now, there really is no data to support routine decolonization for these cases of MRSA in the community. There are certain situations where it might be attempted in cases in patients who have recurrent disease, in outbreaks of disease. And for the most part, even in outbreak situations, decolonization has not been a critical component of stopping outbreaks or treatment. I think we have a lot to learn about decolonization. What are the optimal regimens before a, a recommendation can be made to do it routinely? One thing we want people to be aware of is that there really is little data to support it. So be cautious about what you hear your colleagues doing and applying it in your own practice. There are many reports of, you know, a variety of things out there people are attempting and, and really have to weigh what is the potential risk. Many of these decolonization regimens might be something as simple as using an antibacterial antiseptic soap product, which in the whole scheme of things probably poses little risk to the patient's health themselves, whereas prescribing systemic antibiotics for decolonization can pose complications for the patient. So really weighing the, the benefits and the, really the risks to the patient before prescribing some sort of decolonization regimen. Now, one of the other components of the education initiative is consumer educational materials. What kind of materials are available on the website, and, and how do you see these materials being best put to use? So there's a variety of materials from traditional approaches, from posters to flyers to brochures, 
both for physicians and patients. And we hope the materials will be used both by organizations such as school systems, daycare centers, but also by physicians themselves. So patient brochures, if you have a patient that comes in with an infection, being able to provide them with uh, a comprehensive brochure that addresses the most common questions about MRSA, including what are the prevention things that they should be doing when they get home and to protect their families. I'd like to thank our guest, Jeffrey Hageman. We've been discussing the National MRSA Education Initiative. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Healthcare Policy, on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.